listening to another episode of the Rage Podcast. Today's episode is with guests Dr. Jessica Ordath and Dr. Lauren DiCarvalho. This episode goes over food justice, veganism, and the incarceration system. For more information about both of our speakers and to read their bios, please see the links provided in the description boxes below. Without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into the episode. So first and foremost, thank you all for being here and for making this time and sharing this space with me. Really excited for our discussion. Thank you for having us. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. So the first thing that I want to know is just how both of you met and then eventually came to co-host your event on May 12th. We met because our colleague and friend, Dr. Carlos Jimenez, um, realized that we had a lot in common, including that we're both vegan. And so when I moved to Denver, Lauren had also recently moved and was Carlos's most recent colleague. And so he connected us. But am I forgetting anything to that story? That's exactly what I remember too. It's like, you're new here. Oh, you're vegan too? Wait, I know someone who's new here as well and vegan. Um, and yeah. so that seemed to be like the connecting link. And that was really early on as soon as we moved here, right? Because I moved in June, 2018. And um, I just remember you always being part of my Denver experience. So, and then in terms of the second part of your question cards, I had previously invited um, Jessica to give a talk to my social justice um, living and learning community students. I'm the faculty director of the social justice LLC here at, at DU. And she just gave such a great, compelling talk. My students really liked the material. And when I was getting feedback from them, I kind of realized like, oh, it kind of stinks that the rest of the DU community and the larger community um, of the public basically couldn't hear any of this, right? And I thought, okay, maybe it should be a good idea that we kind of make a, a larger event for so that more folks could join. And so that's what we did for the May 12th event. Something that you both had said that you both are, are vegan. And when I was reading over Dr. Ordas's website, something that you're currently working on is kind of food justice and plant-based food justice specifically. So I would like to kind of know, how has that been for you? Did that, for either of you, impact your choice to go vegan? And what does that kind of represent for you as an individual? Yeah, thank you for that question. So Lauren actually played a part in this as well. Um, I've been vegan since about a year before moving to Denver. So not that long, a few years. And I already knew Lauren and at one point had to go out of town for a conference and asked another friend and Lauren if they could fill in for me. It was a class on people of color and social movements. And uh, the topic was actually veganism. I wanted to introduce my students to food justice topics as a form of social justice. And both of them really said like, academically, there's very little to pull from, especially when we're talking about intersectional veganism and BIPOC communities. And so that kind of <laughs> opened a door for me. And as I was finishing up my first project on migrant incarceration, I just realized that my veganism is becoming more and more important to me, um, not only on a personal level, but intellectually. And because I am trained as a historian, I did do some like light research and realize that there isn't a lot 
of work that historicizes veganism in the Americas and thinking about colonization and ancestral foods um, and Latinx veganism more broadly. And so that was the start of my interest in this project. And so I was vegan first <laughs> and then um, realized that this is a project I would really love to work on um, now that I'm done with the first one. Yeah, and I'll expand upon that. Um, and actually, this is another area we could probably collaborate too. Every time I watch, you know, any type of television show and there's a butt of a joke, it's always about a vegan person, right? And I'm like, oh, my husband always just gives me the side eye. I'm like, oh, just let it. Um, but anyway, in terms of my own veganism, I, I've also been vegan well before um, any of this research. I went vegetarian, strict vegetarian in 2009. And that was just to really align with my um, identity as a feminist. I thought like, I don't want to cause harm to anyone. Um, and so that I felt was really good until I did more and more research over the years and then really learned about how terrible and, um, you know, basically the dairy industry is an imprisonment for um, female cows and it's just rape and torture and all this other stuff. Um, and so it wasn't until about 2015 I went vegan and I've been vegan ever since. And so, you know, I haven't even had a chance to kind of think about that, but it's like a lot of parallels in terms of um, imprisonment. Absolutely. I kind of like to dive into what the last part that you just said is there's a lot of parallels between the whole industry of the meat industry, dairy industry and prisons. So I would kind of like to learn more about what those parallels are from both of you before we kind of dive in more into your work. Sure. So for, you know, for me, when I was doing the research, I found that, you know, those who suffered the most or at least the harshest were um, the dairy cows, basically the female um, dairy, dairy cows. And in terms of, I don't know if you're not familiar with The Handmaid's Tale, right? Wait, that's the everyday life of a female cow, basically, who was forced for dairy and whatnot. It's just like forced to be impregnated, um, taking the child away. And there are so many parts and I'm identified strongly as a feminist. And um, it just, it broke my heart just reading all that in terms of, you know, very patriarchal system, all about profit, um, taking female bodies as property, basically. Um, and it's all about reaping benefits and, and influencing cultural mindsets at the same time where people think, okay, you know, cows are there just for um, human milk. Well, actually cows are there for, you know, their own cow's milk and, and stuff like that. And, you know, um, things of that nature of just kind of changing something that should be um, natural and it's just kind of, you know, warped in order to serve um, the interests of humans and profit, essentially, right? How can you maximize the most amount of profit? You know, and nowadays you might even go past farms and see cows with giant holes in them because it's much easier. So you can just put the stuff in whatever kind of hormonal treatments and stuff you want in them. You just see these, it, I, I forget what it's called, but it's just horrifying. I remember seeing it and like pulling over and just crying by the side of the road. Um, and just things like that. Like, I just wish more folks would make a connection. It, when I found that Angela Davis was vegan, I'm like, oh, finally, another person, make, it makes sense, you know? And she speaks widely about the, the intersection between gender and food justice and incarceration and, and whatnot. And I just hope more people speak around this issue um, because it's not as talked about. You know, people tend to see food as food rather than more um, humanized elements or humanized, not the valued elements, I guess, right? Yeah, and to add to what Lauren just said, I actually didn't realize how much I was highlighting both food and 
an references to animals in my latest book until somebody recently asked me like, oh, did you intentionally do that, especially since you're vegan? And I was like, well, it wasn't intentional, but clearly on a subconscious level, I'm very interested in these topics. And so in my work, um, the idea, like a lot of migrants in the testimonies that I highlight reference, like feeling like animals in the way that they're caged, incarcerated and brutalized and dehumanized. And as someone who's interested in the liberation for all, that the, both of those things are important for me, right? Absolutely the treatment of animals um, as well as, as human beings. Um, and, and I also talk about food in the sense that I write about hunger strikes. I write about the poor quality of food in detention. And in, a, in addition to that, in, in an early chapter, I write about making profit by providing folks who are either incarcerated as migrants or braceros um, by feeding them food that is relatively inexpensive and lacks nutrition, and then that's a profit for someone. Uh, and so yes, food and ideas of, of being treated like an animal actually do come up in, in my book quite a bit. <laughs> I think that works as a perfect segue into kind of the next question of just learning more about your writing process for your book and your research for your book, The Shadow of El Centro. Absolutely. So my process was pretty challenging. The topic is very heavy for folks who are not familiar with it. It basically tells the story of how the facility was constructed and came to be and expanded from 1945 up until 2014 when the facility is closed. And we can get into that maybe a little bit later, but closed technically in 2014. And so it was challenging. I started this process about 10 years ago as a PhD student at UC Davis. And at the time, 10 years ago, there was very little histories on migrant incarceration. Um, this has changed, thankfully, and more people are, are being, you know, have become interested in this topic. But at the time, I just was very unsettled by the lack of, of historical information on the topic and the fact that 10 years ago, I kept hearing from journalists that this was awful, but new, like a new, new conversation. Um, and as a historian, immediately recognized that that was not accurate. And so initially I thought I was gonna write a history of all migrant incarceration. And then that did not seem feasible after I started the research process and settled on one micro history of this one facility because it existed for many decades. And I found that I was actually able to say quite a bit um, and, and really like just delve deeper into the world of migrant incarceration by examining this one camp. And I like to point out that, you know, not surprisingly, it was very challenging to find sources for this topic, not because they don't exist, but because of the nature of the topic. So, so especially government documents and sources, correspondence, they're either still classified or they're working files. And I did do a FOIA request very early on. And that ended up being a dead end. So I had to just be very creative by reaching out to folks and conducting oral histories and looking for photos. I spent quite a bit of time uh, in San Diego and I would travel to El Centro to be able to do almost like ethnography type of work because of the lack of, of sources on this topic. So that, 
you know, goes with the title as well, the shadow of El Centro and sort of its, its silences um, in this research process. When I was reading kind of over the summary of the book, you were looking at uh, photographs, oral histories, private documents. Was there a moment that stuck out to you while you were kind of reflecting on those, taking them all in? There were lots of moments, absolutely. But one that I like to highlight is the historical amnesia that INS now and, and INS then have about their own history, <laughs> which was fascinating to me. And I say this because in 2014, right before the facility closed, I actually was able to get a tour and go inside. And there was um, a Latina ICE uh, agent who gave me that tour. And she said at a certain point, you know, like, I don't know why things are done the way they are. And so I started like asking more pressing questions like, well, how long do you think this center has been in operation? And she really had no idea. She's like, oh, I think like about 10 years, but I'm not really sure. And she actually seemed very interested in, in my research in the sense that she didn't have, you know, any knowledge about the longer history of the place where she worked. Um, and so I think that was a very fascinating moment for me where I realized like, wow, like not only does the public not necessarily know this history, but like the very people who work here don't know. Um, and so, yes, that, that was a moment that I, I write about a little bit in the introduction. Thank you for that. There was something that you had said about, that I'd written down to just kind of highlight is the historical amnesia. That's something that I'd heard before, but I'd never really kind of dived into. Do you have any more notes on that that you'd like to share? Either one of you. Uh, yeah, I can say a little bit more. And then if Lauren wants to jump in, in terms of the carceral state more broadly, but I would say um, that this is also true. And I, I made a brief reference to it earlier for the way that the public thinks about migrant incarceration even in 2021, like we think, um, like my students, for example, they either believe that like ICE is the issue, right? And so I will say I am an abolitionist and I'm a big advocate of abolish ICE, but I think that that doesn't get at the entire narrative in the sense that there was this entire detention and deportation regime and apparatus that has a very long history. And if we really think about migrant incarceration more holistically, like I think we really need to historicize that to realize that the problem is actually goes much further. And so yes, abolishing ICE would be an important step, but then we need to think about like, well, who profits or who benefits from policing borders? Who profits or benefits from policing migrants and keeping them incarcerated? And those questions are actually much more complicated than just thinking about perhaps like the Trump era and the separation of families. Like that's part of the picture, but it is a small part. Kind of going off of that, there was a lot of discussion over this summer kind of about how policing takes different forms. And you heard a lot of different narratives and that there was kind of that focus on prisons, on migrant detention centers, and people were beginning to see more how it's in the schools, it's in the prisons, it's in all these places which normally don't get that highlighted piece. So along with doing 
y'all's research throughout this time, have there been common misconceptions or stereotypes around incarceration that you have often heard? For me, there's kind of been two main ones, I guess, to think about. One is the fact that a lot of people don't stop and think about how much media tends to glamorize the women's prison culture, because I look specifically at women's prison systems and incarceration. Um, and to give you an idea of what I was talking about, you know, I had previously worked with um, women inmates in at my former institution, um, just because I wanted to understand those who were, whose lives were kind of being depicted on screen to see, okay, you know, here's what I'm analyzing. What do people actually have to say about this? And to give you an idea of how much it was glamorized, you know, one of the inmates was really candid in saying she absolutely loved the show because it made her laugh so much. It shows nothing about her life is nothing like prison culture, but it made her laugh and she liked it for that reason. Um, and I think that really kind of speaks fine because then, you know, again, as we know, um, what people see on screen impacts people's public perception, which then in turn impacts public policy that goes back to impact the people behind bars and other, you know, social justice matters and stuff like that. I would say another aspect is that there tends to be an unhealthy um, interest and focus on what people did to land themselves behind bars. And you definitely see that in media in terms of really emphasizing this aspect, rather than taking time to think about where did society fail that person time and again, long before they even entered the carceral state. Yeah, and in terms of migrant incarceration, very specifically, I would say that a common misconception is that it arose during the 1980s. I do think that's a very pivotal moment with the Reagan administration privatizing a lot of immigration facilities and just making it so that more people can be detained and deported based on different policies and laws. However, as my research shows and a lot of other scholars have started to argue, we can definitely talk about the World War II period, the 1940s forward more as a important date in terms of migrant incarceration. So yes, the misconception is that it's a post 1980s phenomenon and that's not accurate. Thank you both for that. Dr. DiCarvalho, I would like to learn a bit more, dive into your research a bit more in terms of you analyze specific depictions of prisons and then on topics specifically for incarcerated women, mental health issues, and then prison as a workplace. So I kind of like to learn more about that research. And then a question that I had as an offset to that was within your research, have you seen films or TV shows that accurately or completely do not accurately represent prison life for these women? So I guess I'll, I'll start with how I got to this because it kind of um, evolves from there. So my other area of in, uh, expertise besides looking at women's incarceration on screen is actually looking at the depiction of workplace issues during the Great Recession of 2007, 2009, specifically an intersection of gender and economic sexism. Um, and so I came to Orange is the New Black on Netflix through that lens where I was really interested in analyzing the fictional Litchfield Penitentiary as a workplace. Um, and then as everything goes just in life, also definitely in academia, I just fell down the rabbit hole basically very quickly. I was more and more curious about mass incarceration. I was more curious about uh, prison life, prison culture, women's um, aspects uh, as well. 
And so, you know, I, I did end up working with actual women inmates to make sure that, hey, I'm understanding um, the lived experiences of those who actually went through and are currently serving time. Um, because I find with all of my research, being a fem feminist media studies scholar is it's very much not the case. What you see on TV is different than real life. And I found the same thing to be true, right? And so the more I was going down the rabbit hole of women's incarceration, working with actual women's uh, inmates in real life, there were so many different commonalities that I was seeing, only they were handled very differently on screen versus off screen, right? So one of the big ones is mental illness kept coming up in all the conversations um, within the, the women's circle and the 12 women inmates that I was working with. Um, and But you also see it play out on avenues such as Orange New Black um, or the Australian drama Wentworth as well. Um, and I just found that, you know, it's something that needs a lot of time and devotion to showcase, right? And really feature. I find that it's kind of usually a backstory of why someone is vilified within a series, right? Um, and a lot of my work within uh, mental illness among women inmates on television kind of showcases that um, a lot of different shows like to be sympathetic toward those who have mental illnesses, disorders, et cetera except when a character is made to be a villain. Then they resort to all sorts of cliched stereotypes in order to kind of dehumanize that person further, right? Um, and it also kind of depends on what is the mental illness. I learned that, you know, when it came to alcohol use disorder or substance use disorder, that was treated vastly different than when you had someone who was suffering from bipolar disorder, et cetera, right? The second part was, you know, have you seen shows that kind of dispel this or kind of show it accurately or whatnot? I would say that there are pros and cons to different shows, you know, just because of the political economic structure of mass media. I don't think you'll ever see something that's truly accurate, you know, especially with feminism or gender or, or, or anything else for that matter, because it's very much a patriarchal system. Um, I would say that, you know, um, if you're taking, for instance, a show like Genji Cohen's Aren't you Black versus, you know, Wentworth, which was based on a long time, really beloved soap opera in Australia. You know, Genji Cohen, who is the showrunner for Aren't you Black, already had ties with Netflix because of the tie with Lionsgate. Right. And so because she had already proved her worth with Weeds on Showtime, they basically said, we'll fund anything you want, basically, on Netflix. Right. Um, and she made it very clear that um, as important it is as it is to initiate critical dialogues around this area, her main objective was um, good television, sensationalized television, right? Versus if you take a show like Wentworth that, again, was based on um, Prisoner, which that was the original name of the soap opera, and now it was uh, reimagined as a prison drama. Um, the showrunners for that and the creative team behind that show, they did months, nine months worth of research with actual women inmates. They used the stories of women inmates, right? Even when they were doing the reimagining for Wentworth, right, which came out a couple months before Orange and Black did in 2013, they wanted to stay true to those roots, right? And they wanted to make sure that those important storylines were heard, but also they wanted to account for intersectionality. Um, and so, I think in that respect, you know, that is awesome. Another great show that Wentworth does is that it does showcase um, Australian Indigenous women in major roles, in really important roles. And actually, like two out of the three, basically, stars of the show at one point were Indigenous women. 
But at the same time, you have to consider all these other factors with television. Are they major characters? If so, they got more screen time and they were handled more sympathetically versus, you know, indigenous folks who were minor characters were, again, resorting to cliched storylines where they had so many opportunities to really kind of hit the nail on the head and emphasize certain injustices done to, you know, especially indigenous um, inmates but they didn't do that, right? Um, and same thing with Orange and New Black, you know, it opened a lot of doors of conversation within popular culture, right? A lot of people hadn't heard of Wentworth. They only discovered Wentworth, even though it premiered before Orange and New Black, when they were waiting for the next season of the Orange and New Black. And they're like, oh, we need something else. Let's find it on Netflix. And Netflix uses the algorithm that will recommend that. Um, one of the things that Netflix did is, you know, one, it made the rising star of Laverne Cox, which was huge in terms of representation of trans characters, trans individuals in real life. Um, it really brought to light kind of thinking about detention centers as well toward the latter seasons and ICE um, privatization of prison. They had a, a conversation about that. Um, other, a lot of the times it didn't happen organically, and that could be, you know, the downfall. When it came to mental illness, I was looking at the fact that um, certain characters got away with doing horrific things and their um, unchecked nature based on idealized beauty and whatnot really served harmful narratives for audiences in terms of, oh, well, she looks pretty, so she can't be dangerous. Even though for my eyes and what she was doing, this was the most dangerous character on the show. And it was very much watered down and downplayed because they wanted the other characters to like her, but also more importantly, audiences to like her as well. Right. And I'm thinking specifically of Lorna Morello in that case. Right. She they very much wanted her to be a likable character until the very last season. I think they finally addressed it. But you know, a lot of people had stopped watching or other things. And so you got to think about the narratives that are given to audiences in terms of ideological messaging in that respect. Some of the common themes that have kind of been coming up is a lot on just dehumanization in general and then glamorizing of women's prisons. And then also a, a huge focus on the punishment instead of how did the person get here? And I think that's something that we're starting to have those conversations about. I think a lot about transformative justice and how we're realizing a lot of specific, in the, I think of in the juvenile detention system, like a lot of these kids are dealing with a lot of trauma, but we don't wanna address that. We just wanna kind of immediately villainize them, immediately label them as criminals, as et cetera, et cetera. And it just kind of feeds this very harmful system. And then another one has kind of been intersections of gender and also, I believe you said gender and economic wealth earlier. And so that kind of works as a good segue into learning more about Dr. Das. Your One of your specialties focuses on capitalism. And one of the conversations around prisons is, as Dr. DiCavallo had said before, kind of the privatization of those and what that means. So I'd kind of like to learn more about how do you see capitalism fitting into the conversation about migrant detention centers or just prisons in general? Yeah, so definitely with privatization, we know that incarcerating people has become a source for private prisons to make a lot of money. And so yes, absolutely conversations about privatization, but 
because my specific research was able to look at one facility, the El Centro Immigration Detention Camp, I actually found that even in the very construction of this camp in 1945, we can think about racial capitalism in the sense that the unauthorized Mexican migrant men who were incarcerated there became a source to extract their labor. And so I say this because in 1945, they were the ones who were forced to not only construct the facility slash camp, but they also were forced to labor inside the camp as well as outside. So throughout the Imperial Valley, which in terms of geography is about two hours east of San Diego for folks who are not familiar with the area, local border patrol inspectors basically coerced and in some cases, in a lot of cases, for or forced uh, unauthorized Mexican migrant men to work for their profit and their benefit. And so the only wage in 1945 was either food rations, <laughs> which is not a wage, or the delay in detention and deportation. And so even but before we talk about privatization, if we look to a moment in the 1940s, we see that during the very early construction and rise of migrant incarceration, labor, forced labor and extracting labor from migrants is one of the many purposes and functions of migrant incarceration. So I would argue that it's, you can't separate that, like racial capitalism is very much a part of this story. So thank you for that question. You know, even looking at women's imprisonment, right, in the U.S., it's gone up between 1980 and 2016 over 700%, right? And you have to ask yourself why. A lot of this is privatization, people profiting off of it. And this actually circles back to the other question you asked about mental illness, because then you have the overcrowding of prisons. You know, currently it's operating 103% in the U.S. And I also look at Australia as well to look at um, the Australian penal system, and that's at 122% capacity. And then what falls to the wayside? Well, a lot of it is it prevents inmates who have mental illnesses from getting proper treatment, right? And so these are different ways that, you know, continues the dehumanization of people who are behind bars. And again, a lot of it deals with going back to, you know, this mentality of a punitive state rather than a rehabilitative state, right? And now it's just like, you really care as, as long as we make profit um, is where we're currently at. On the subject of dehumanization and the focus on punishment, what would you say to someone if you're having a conversation with them and they say, well, either they came here illegally or, and we don't necessarily want them to be in the country, or if they say, well, they end up in prison somehow, what would y'all's response to that be? This is a great question. Uh, <laughs> so I would say that we need to question the very idea of legality and illegality, right? Like what is a law? What is illegal? What is a crime? All of that is socially constructed and it's depended on our historical moment. And so, yes, Technically, in 2021, if you cross the border without proper authorization, there are social as well as legal consequences, but that has not always been the case. And so I really like folks to think about that construction and how it wasn't always and it doesn't always have to be. 
And I'll probably just piggyback off of that and take it a step further. You know, for me, it's all about media depictions. Where are they picking up these this rhetoric of us versus them? You know, news media, film, pop culture, et cetera, is a lot of it. You know, specifically within television, which my is my focal point. Um, it goes back to just, you know, telling characters backstories, but only what landed them in prison right? It never showcases, again, going back to what I was saying, all the things, you know, and when I was working with women, all of the problems in their life stem back to childhood, right? There was parents who were behind bars, parents experiencing alcohol use or substance use disorder, severe cases of child abuse, sexual abuse, incest, right? And turning to drugs and other things as coping mechanisms. You know, the system fails people time and again. There's so many red flags, but people just kind of dismiss those who are oftentimes lower income, people of color, women, um, you know, basically the other with a capital O and just kind of disregards them by from society. And then you have media come along and kind of dehumanize them further and solidify, you know, the imagery in people's minds, right? Where it's, you ask someone, okay, you know, think of a tree. And because of all the branding, you think of certain trees. Well, the same thing goes in an effect of what is, what does a criminal look like, right? Um, students and, and people in general will give you very specific answers based on um, mediated images. So to kind of wrap us up for our last question, I just want to know what would be either the takeaway that you'd most want our listeners to know from our discussion or from your research, however you would like to take that, what would you leave, want to leave our listeners with today? Yeah, so I can start two things. <laughs> I don't know if that's cheating. Uh, one is to question the very function of migrant incarceration, because I think if we really delve into that topic, then we start to realize that the functions are very much like um, prisons generally is to be punitive, is to be instructive, is to regulate migration as opposed to an, anything positive. Um, but secondly, I would say to imagine futures without incarceration. I men mentioned my abolition abolitionism earlier. And so as much as I think there are real things that we can do today to try to alleviate the devastation in terms of policing migration and just incarceration more broadly. I also think it's very important to, as hard as it is, to really envision a future without these systems. And for me, I would add more in terms of the mediated aspect, right? Context is key. Who's putting up what, why, when, how, um, and really asking yourselves, how are you con consuming it? Because again, your perception goes on later on to impact public policy, which impacts people's lives, right? Um, I would also advocate with contextualization is key is what isn't being shown as just as important, if not more important than what isn't being shown, right? And so just being really mindful of what you're consuming, um, what you're watching, ask questions, look into the director or showrunners, because even that you can go down the rabbit hole of, you know, here's blah, 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 all these other things with political economic of mass media, uh, initiating critical dialogues and just like spreading awareness, you know, just kind of educating yourself, doing the homework, asking yourself, you know, and I'm sorry, not sorry, but you're going to like really just find it everywhere of like, oh, my goodness, paradynamics. There's so many injustices that I just merely consume and I don't actually stop to think about what are the messages I'm being given. Right. And how it can impact what I'm thinking, how I treat others, how I treat myself um, and the long term ramifications of this, I would say.
Thank you for that. And then just kind of the last question to that is, how can we support you both going forward, both your work, your upcoming plans, whatever that looks like, how can we be of service to you? I, I can um, start. You can follow me on social media, uh, <laughs> shameless plug. So on Twitter, I'm at Ordaz Jessica and first name is actually spelled differently. So I'll, I'll spell it for you. It's Y-E-S-I-K-A. So again, that's at Ordaz Jessica, just to keep, um, keep in touch, perhaps collaborate if anybody's interested in collaborating either in terms of my work on incarceration or in the future veganism, intersectional veganism in particular, um, I'd love to hear from you. Same, I would say collaboration is key, you know, taking classes as well. I teach a lot of in representational issues on women specifically, um, join the social justice LLC, you'll learn more about it and also have community engagement with the gathering place and other local organizations. Um, I think that's pretty much it, right? And to be mindful again of what you're watching because it does matter, even though you don't, might not stop to think about it. Something I just wanted to highlight really quickly is kind of the common theme about care that's been throughout this whole episode from our discussions about veganism to our discussions about the detention centers. And that's just something I just wanted to highlight because I think that's just amazing how you're embodying that in every part of your life. Well, thank you both for being here. Once again, thanks for carving out some time and some space. Thank you for teaching me. I love learning from both of y'all. So thank you very much for sharing this time with me. Absolutely. Thank you, Florence. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Rage Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by iRISE, or the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality. For more information about us and the work that we do, please visit irise.du.edu. To ensure that we can continue to bring you quality content, please be sure to subscribe or follow, like, and share on the platform that you're listening to us on. The music for this particular podcast episode is called Daily, and it's by producer LaCrimbo. Once again, Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Rage Podcast. We'll see you soon.